This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, I'm talking with Brett Wanicott, a bird hunter, dog trainer, field trialer, conservationist, conservation mentor, and author of the book titled A Millionaire's Dream. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, is your producer. Brandon and I are, are laughing right now because he's got this fancy new system. It's a button bar, and uh, so I've done now three or four takes. Look at you, like, fading the music I mean, out over there. And, and so we try to do the, the show um, open and... Play some of the sound that you accidentally hit instead. Uh, well, the sound I hit instead was the good old... <laughs> which has absolutely nothing to do with the show and or the setup and or what's going to come. Oh. But yeah, that's the button I hit. Well, Whatever, uh, it's new gear. I got flustered, man. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I'm excited about this because, I mean, like, hit a couple more. Hit a couple uh, more. What, what do we have there? There we got that that's one. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Lot of or those or when I tell up. a joke, <laughs> or when 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 you tell a joke to make you feel better, yeah. bless you. Yeah, we've got a few of them lined up on the on the button bar. I, if anyone has any requests for me to put on the button bar, let me know. Send Travis that uh, information. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Well, now we got to take this on the on the show live. Uh, last week, um, I believe I got more feedback on last week's show than. Maybe any of the other podcasts we've done. Maybe, maybe not. But a lot of it, which was great to hear. Um, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, George Lyle and Ben Bredigan and I, we spent a day training. And then afterwards, we really tried our best to break things down as to how to develop a puppy and uh, where to start. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface on it, but the questions have been phenomenal. I could do a whole nother show, Brandon, on just the questions that people followed up with. Oh, I can believe it. Which is great. And so then obviously now my brain is turning. I talked to George. So a lot of people wanted George to host a seminar and I did have to tell them that he does have a day job and get away because he needs to spend more time with my dog. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, I did I did throw the idea out there about potentially doing a live seminar with him. And then we could break this thing down into four parts, maybe three or four parts, you know, developing a dog, you know, the basics get you there. Um, introducing birds, um, you know, finishing a dog, the different steps along the way. I'm, I think what I want is feedback from listeners. Do you want us to break that down? Will you be bored if we do? Uh, there are some challenges in trying to walk through a training process without seeing it. This is obviously an audio podcast. So that's my struggle. That was my struggle sitting there with George. We were all exhausted from a long day and we just tried to power through to make sense of it. And um, I wish I would have stopped talking and just let George talk more because the man has so much wisdom underneath that cowboy hat. 
Oh, it's incredible. I, I, I really like the slap happy part of you guys getting in and starting yeah. up the show. Yeah, it sounded like it was a fun day. Yeah, yeah, there was, there but was yeah. some beverages involved. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, well earned sure. too for, for them. Yeah. But no, I think that's that's one of the biggest requests I see from people is more dog training info. Every, I mean, everybody, yeah. not everybody, a majority of the people that listen to the show are dog owners and dog lovers. So yeah, it's why gotta, not? It's got to be close to 100%. It's got to be close. <laughs> They're very close. There are those solo hunters out there yes. though that 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 yep. definitely you know we should be doing some stuff about them sometime too. But yeah, mm-hmm. the dogs. Uh, who doesn't love dogs? And that's gonna segue perfectly into our guest today. Um, and as long as I'm talking about feedback, um, when when listeners send in messages, Brandon, send me they'll, they'll send them direct or through our website or whatever. Um, I get the messages and I usually try to answer the questions, but then I I always ask. Hey, what do you want to hear us talk about? Or what, or who should we interview next? Any ideas, any guests? And yesterday I got a, a listener said, Hey, would you have Brett Wanakut on the show? And I think he'd be a great guest to have. And I responded, I was like, You're in luck. Brett's on cue. He's our guest this week. So, Brett, welcome to the show. How does that make you feel knowing that people have recommended you to, uh, to be a guest to, for us to interview? Well, how could how could I not be flattered? I mean, that's just awesome. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that. That's that's really great of whoever that was. Yep, and um, they weren't alone. I had a few other people that sent in messages over the last few weeks saying, "Hey, I think you should uh, have Brett on the show." Uh, multiple <laughs> reasons why. I mean, if you at, off the top, I mentioned you know a long list of things that you're well known for, um, and obviously dogs are a very big part of that. Um, if Brett, if somebody asks you, what would you say you do? <laughs> How do you respond to that? That is so hard to, to answer. <laughs> People ask me what I do. And I mean, I say, well, you mean for a living or, or, uh, you know, what, what my passion is. And it's really hard to describe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm involved in so many different things and, um, and I, I, I probably try to be involved in too many things, but, uh, it, it you know, I mean, I, I, I try to. I try to expose people to the world of hunting, specifically upland game bird hunting. Maybe people that haven't seen it. Maybe people that are on the fence about hunting in general, and try to um, you know show them some beauty in it. How do you go about doing that? Well, I think part of it is just by setting an example um, on social media, um, in, in life in general. Uh, somehow, I found myself um, through it. Start. It all started with a duck call years ago. Believe it or not, um, I was blowing a duck call competitively, and I, and I, I was I won. I was lucky enough to win a couple of state championships and things, and and that's how I met um, the host of uh, of KSL Outdoors, Adam, and he and I became great friends, and we started doing a little hunting together, and and we started shooting shows, and that allowed me, you know, an audience to to show this to. And then as, as that went on, uh, I sort of kind of got my own following and I, I started um, doing some other things with the Utah Chucker and Wildlife Foundation and Habitat Projects and um, fundraising. And, and then I, I sort of stumbled in the door to this um, program that I, that I do where um, uh, I go into high schools, into FFA programs and, and talk to them about uh, you know, hunting and, and how wildlife conservation is funded in the United States. And, and I take the dogs with me and, um, you know, the dogs show off and the dogs are a great gateway to that. So 
How did that begin with the FFA and getting involved there? Because I feel like there's probably a lot of people listening right now that have the ability to do what you're doing, have the knowledge to do what you're doing, but they maybe don't know how to get in the door, so to speak. Yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, cause obviously you've been doing that for a while now. And then second question is what are the kids responses to you and the dogs and your message? Yeah. So it's, it started kind of by happenstance. So one of the ladies that I, that I um, run in NASTRA trials with, uh, she had a daughter that was an FFA and she thought it would be pretty cool if we took the dogs in and just did a little demonstration. And, it, and actually she asked me to come talk about duck calling and mallard vocalization <laughs> is how it started. And, and then she thought, God, we'll bring the dogs and we'll do a dog demonstration. So anyway, I thought of a way to, to do a dog demonstration in the little area they had. And, and it started out that way and it just kind of grew. And I think I did five high schools last year. Um, I, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try to do six this year if I can make it happen. Um, but it just sort of grew from that. Um, so I, I, most of the FFA teachers, they're teaching an animal science class as part of the curriculum now. And hunting is sort of mentioned in that. And, and I think the, the teachers themselves are pretty willing to accept somebody in as, you know, as long as you're, um, you know, the kind of person that needs to be, you know, that they want in their, in their classroom. But, um, uh, anyway, the way I, the way I approach it is I walk into the classroom and I bring these, it used to be just two. Now it's, it's four English setters and they're well-trained and they're well-behaved. They're house dogs. They're my best buds, right? All of them. And we walk in and we just let these dogs roam the classroom and I don't have to do much to win the kids over because the dogs have already done it. Right. And so we talk about, um, you know, some of the things that I just mentioned, and I usually bring a guest speaker with me, somebody from the, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources or from one of the local conservation groups um, to talk a little bit. And then um, after we've discussed this, and, and one of my favorite questions to ask um, is, you know, how many people in this room are hunters? And there's always a few hands that go up. And then you say, well, how many are non-hunters? And a bunch of hands go up. And then you say, how many are against hunters? And there's always a couple of hands that go up. Really? And so in that, yeah, always. And so in that, in that crowd, you know, I've, I've got some work to do. And what I say is my job isn't to convert you to, to be pro hunting or anti hunting or anything is to show you what hunters do for wildlife in this country. And then we go into the wildlife restoration act of 1937 and, and all those, you know, important milestones, um, Duck Stamp Act, all those milestones that that form the foundation of uh, modern wildlife management. And once that's done, that's sort of the, the part I call the boring necessary part, even though it's not boring to me. Um, we, we go outside and I just use, um, if it's close enough to home, I'll use my homing pigeons. And um, we set up an exercise and I like to, I like to walk the dogs off, you know, 50 yards away and put them at woe and then walk out and talk to the kids while the dogs are standing there. Um, and I'll have a pigeon hidden right in front of them somewhere. And I'll, I guess I should back up. I hide the pigeon before I put the dogs at woe. Right. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, so I, I, I teach them how to put a pigeon to sleep, you know, how to dizzy a pigeon and put it to sleep. I, I don't use launchers because I just think it's more fun to do it this way. And the kids usually just, they're in love with 
putting a pigeon to sleep. So at some point during the demonstration, I call a few volunteers out to, to, you know, dizzy a pigeon and anyway, hide the bird. And, and I try to hide them in such a, a fashion. It'll, it'll produce a dramatic result. So that when that dog comes by in a path that I hope I've predicted correctly, um, he's going to spin and just stick that bird hard and, you know, really put on a show for the kids. And you hear a lot of oohs and ahs and, um, you know, there's always like two or three kids in that group that, that are just into it and they come up and talk to you after. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's super rewarding and super fun. Oh, it sounds uh, awesome, Brett. What are it, some of the best questions they've ever asked you? I have to imagine you've um, gotten a lot. Yeah, they ask all kinds of things. Um, most, <laughs> a lot of it's about how to put a pigeon to sleep and why do they do that? <laughs> I don't have answers for it. So. <laughs> well, can you, can you describe that right now? How do you, without sure. seeing it, you just heard yeah. Brandon and I go back and forth a little bit about our last show, a dog training sure. seminar that we kind of gave audio yeah. version. You know, it's hard yeah, to not listen, see I something. To your la- yeah. Yeah. I listened to your last show. It was great too, by the way. Hey, thanks. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so you, you tuck a pigeon's head under its wing and you spin it around in circles like um, uh, sort of like a softball pitch underhand. Mm. And then you go overhand and underhand and overhand like a windmill. Yeah. And you do that about eight times. And you can take that pigeon and just set it on your open hand, and it'll just sit there with its head under its wing if you've done it correctly. Um, and that allows you time to hide the bird um, in some brush or something. And the bird's not hurt. It's, it's fine. Um, and when you, the dog comes in and points it, you can then just disturb it from its rest, and it'll wake up and fly away. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fun way to do it as long as you've got steady dogs. How long will the bird stay there? Um, usually long enough. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you, get the, you get the bird, uh, you get the, the whole process. I, I have to imagine there's a little bit of pressure because oh, class, sure. class sizes vary from how big to how big. Oh, so sometimes there could be 50 kids. Sometimes it's, you know, only 30 or something. Okay. Gotcha. But still, there's usually, a lot of usually se- Yeah. Several classes a day, usually. Hmm. So I usually do three classes at a school. So then my next question, Brad, is... Why do you do it? Well, we have to give back, right? Mm-hmm. Hunting is a full circle thing. And I don't know that I understood this when I was younger. I mean, I thought I did, but we think we understand a lot of things when we're young. Um, but you, there comes a time when you have to save it for the future. Um, and you have to find ways. Gosh, dang it. I'm so sorry, Travis. <clears throat> okay. I'm going to like bring a dog over here to bite me so I don't, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I don't right. crack up. But um, passion, I, I'm a passionate person and it runs in all directions and sometimes I can't control it. Um, okay, so why do I do it? Hunting is a, is, a, is a full circle thing and I don't know that I understood that when I was younger. Um, but as we get older and, and the act of, of hunting changes from, I mean, when we first start out, maybe it's more about the kill. Maybe it's more about harvesting a few birds or, um, uh, whatever it is. But I think for me, that's what it was. It was more about harvesting birds. And then it became more about harvesting birds in a, in a clean way, um, with good dog work. And then it became about giving back. And then it became about finding new ways to give back. Um, and, uh, I don't have any children of my own. So this is my way of giving back to more than just one. Yeah. Well, you're 
I, I, um, I've been fortunate to speak for a lot of different groups over the last few years, uh, different Pheasants Forever banquets. Um, but one thing that I feel is important for the organizations involved with Habitat, Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, you know, the Pheasants Forever is the Habitat organization. And I, I remind people this almost every time. But some people in the organization literally plant seeds in the soil and they grow grass and that will put more acres of habitat on the ground to grow wildlife. Some people plant seeds in the souls of other hunters. And that is a very, very powerful way of giving back and making a difference. And we don't know where those seeds are going to sprout and where they're going to grow. But Brett, I guarantee the hundreds of kids that you've shown that you've given that information to allows them to think, do I want to learn a little bit more about this? Do I care about this? I'm interested in this dog. I'm fascinated by the birds. And, you know, if you're not telling them who is exactly. And the opportunity was there. And I think it's there in other States around the country. And I think if, if maybe you have a son and daughter in FFA and if you have some really nicely trained bird dogs and you, you feel like you're really comfortable in speaking in front of a few kids, um, maybe give them a call and see if they're interested in, in having you come and, and, and do a little demonstration because we could, we could touch more than a couple kids here in Utah. We could, you know, we could reach some kids in Minnesota and, and Iowa and South Dakota and Amen. wherever. Well, now, I, now you've got me thinking that I got to do this because I was in FFA and I actually mm-hmm. went to state, Brett. For wildlife identification. Brandon, hit the button bar. <laughs> that was not the no, no, no. You got to work on that. No, no. I, I felt like that was fairly appropriate. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I really did. It's a true story. I went to state in sorry, FFA. Sorry. And we're wild- technology so but nobody came yeah. and gave me the information that you gave brett i think that as a kid i would have been all over that well, i would have well, loved that wouldn't you just love to see a, a, an english setter fly across you know, come and run straight at you and just stick a point right in front of you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This has really got me thinking. I really hope that other people right now are thinking about this too, because imagine the first time you saw a dog do that, stick a point, you know, or remember it like it was yesterday. Yes, I do too. I remember the first time a dog went on point that I was hunting with and the guys like just walk, you know, don't walk behind, but just come right in front and just walk right, right past and get ready, you know, and this big old rooster comes flying out of the grass. And I just like, I was so taken back by the whole explosion, but then thinking about the dog and the whole scenario. And it's, I don't even know how long ago it was, Brett, but I still absolutely remember it. And man, that is, that is, I did not expect our conversation to go this direction today. Um, but I'm I'm glad it did. I thought it might surprise you a little. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is, this is really, um, um, valuable conversation. Let me tell you about my first time. Yeah. So I was probably five or six years old and I was hunting with my dad and he had these German short hairs. My dad was a German short hair breeder. And dad was not a dog trainer. Let me start there. He, he was a breeder. Um, 
let's be clear, there's a difference. <laughs> His dogs were just natural, but but he had this this setter and or excuse me, not a setter, a uh, German short-haired pointer, and it ran. Um, it came running past me, and it was bigger than me, and I was a little bit startled by it because I wasn't exactly comfortable with dogs yet at that time. And, and it ran by, and it and Dad goes, "Look, he's on point," and, and I couldn't really see it. And we walked over there, and, and the dog was standing there, and he was just so intense. He was like his tail was shaking, and he was just and it was just a pure chocolate brown short hair, and he had a little bit of gray on his muzzle. And I really wasn't sure what to expect because Dad had been talking to me a little bit about, you know, dogs on point. I'd heard grownups talking about dogs on point all the time. And I, I didn't really understand what it meant. I, I, I think maybe I thought that the dog would like hold up its paw and show her the birds or something. I don't know <laughs> what I expected, but it wasn't what I expected. And then this, this rooster cackled from the grass in front of his dog. And it seemed like it was bigger than me. And it, and it kind of scared me a little bit. And I remember stumbling back. And I looked up at my dad and he was, you know, he was following it with the gun and he pulled the trigger and the sound of the gun even kind of scared me a little bit. And then he's yelling fetch and there's a bunch of chaos going on. And and the next thing I could see, because the grass was too tall for me to really see through very much, is this dog coming parting the grass with this rooster in his mouth and brought it to my dad. My dad's like, look at this bird. And I was like, wow, what a bird, you know. And that was my first experience. And that was a long, long time ago, but... Um, it sure certainly left an impression as you can. Well, yeah. Isn't it amazing how that sticks with you, which I think goes back to what you've shown kids, hundreds of Mm -hmm. kids now over the years, uh, just by taking some time out of your day and, and showing them something that, I mean, aside from the handful that raise their hands, every time you ask who, how else would they ever see that? How else would they ever even know that? is possible. I mean, if you don't yeah. have somebody literally physically taking you or showing you, nobody else is going to give them that opportunity. So exactly. Oh man. Yeah. Well, well done. Um, yes, obviously anybody else that knows, Hey, I can do that. Um, I don't think it's wrong to probably reach out to a school district or a teacher or somebody in your area most schools, I think, still have FFA, I would imagine, so that that opportunity is there. But I know in Minnesota, uh, one of the teachers at my local school started a conservation club. So that's now in my mind, I got to talk to Wayne about, Brandon, make a mental note here. We're going to have Wayne on and we're going to do, I think this is something. I, I, we're, okay, uh, on-air production meeting right yes. now. We're, we're talking. <laughs> All right, I'm, I've got my computer ready. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk to Wayne Trapp, Waconia Conservation Club, because that would be so cool. Um, so anyway, I'm going to take it one step further. Please do. So there's one, are you okay with me going one step further? Please, right? yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'll take it one step further. There is a, a one group, um, Wasatch High School here, in Utah, and the teacher there is super passionate about conservation himself. And he was the second school I did, but he was already doing stuff before I came. And he has his kids raising chuckers as part of a. I, I wish I could remember all the names of all these programs that they use, but there's so many. Um, but they raise chuckers and sell them as part of their like their senior project thing and they make a little bit of money and then they hold some of those shuckers over and they sponsor a school chucker hunt, um, which is really amazing because they get all these first time hunters. And so he takes them out and they, they learn how to shoot trap 
And then um, I get some guys from my, my bird dog club I'll, and I make sure I, I handpick these dogs. I pick dogs that are steady broke. I mean, not broke to wing shot and fall, but broke to flush. Birds can stand up and walk underneath them and the dog's going to stand. And uh, then we go up and we, we uh, release these chuckers and we, we take these kids out uh, in pairs two at a time, um, each with a guide and a, and a, and a dog, one single dog. And, um, we give them a, you know, a simulated hunt. It's not, it's not wild birds, you know, um, in Hales Canyon, but it, it, it's the neatest thing they've seen. Mm-hmm. When did anyway. you, when did you get into, uh, training and how? Dog training. Yeah. Um, my, like I said, my father was a, was a breeder. So when I was a little kid, um, and, and my, my father was kind of a weekend dad, he, you know, I had, my parents were divorced like a lot of folks. And so I would go to my dad's on the weekends. He had, um, always seemed to have a litter of puppies. And in my memory, it seemed like there was always a litter, but there's no way that's possible. <laughs> but, um, I would teach those puppies how to sit and stuff. And that was my earliest thing. And then I was like, when I, I got a puppy when I was like 15, and I really tried hard. I just didn't have the means to, to train it. And I didn't have the internet or all the things that we have today. Um, I, I didn't have money to buy books and things. I, I did the best I could with what I had. I basically ran the dog on wild birds and, and yeah, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like a do over with that dog in fact, oh, but, gosh, um, going forward more, um, as I moved out and I, the first time I had, there was one year of my life I spent without a bird dog and it was the worst year of my life. Um, but as soon as I got a dog again, um, I really put forth a lot of effort. Um, the problem was, as I was a struggling young person and I had to come up with ways to, uh, make things work on a really limited budget. I mean, I was struggling to buy a bag of old Roy dog food, let alone, you know, being able to buy launchers, you know, and I didn't have an electric collar. I trained my first dog without an electric collar and uh, I just on, you know, whatever I could make work. So I was probably about, Oh, 20 years old when I, when I got him and, um, I made a lot of mistakes. He, he, but he was better than me and he taught me a lot of good things and I made a lot of mistakes, but together we learned how to hunt birds and he, he taught me how to hunt birds. Wow. So how many dogs now have you trained in since that first one? Oh, but, um, I don't know. I'd have to really put some thought to it. Um, let's see. Ballpark. Uh, eight or 10 okay. of my own, you know, I have, of course I help other guys and been so, involved with, with helping train a lot of dogs. Well, last week when George was on the show and we kind of, tried to explain, like I said, as best we could, what we were working with. One of the things are, you know, several people reached out and they said, well, how do I proceed with this training process without having, let's say a launcher or some of the other tools? Like you just said, you know, you didn't have a, you didn't even have a GPS collar. You didn't have a lot of things, but you still did it. You still made it work. And I think oh, yeah. you do what you can with what you have is probably the golden rule, right? Yeah. GPS collar. Heck, I didn't even have an electric collar. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like, I had a lead rope I made, you know, I, I mean, I didn't have anything. Um, but yeah, you, you do what you can with, with what you have. And I think, I think that's what's wrong with a lot of, a lot of the, the videos and the, 
you know, the books that I read and stuff is a lot of them are based on expecting that you have the perfect scenario. You have a Johnny house out back and, and, you know, 30 acres to run a dog on or something. Mm -hmm. And most people, I mean, I think probably, at least in my world, the average bird dog owner here in Utah probably lives in the suburbs and his dog is probably sleeping where my dogs are right now, which is on dog pillows all around the living room. (laughs) Um, that, you know, he doesn't have a Johnny house out back. He doesn't have a, uh, all these, um, you know, the advantages that a, that a uh, pro trainer has. Um, I always tell people if you're going to, you know, when, when people ask me, they're going to start a bird dog. And the thing that I've been telling them more and more lately is start a flock of homing pigeons because um, they're cheap to keep and you can use them over and over and over. And um, you can you know, use them you know, far away from your house and they'll keep coming back. And uh, birds are expensive they're hard to get here in utah we we seem to have a bird shortage that's been going for about four years it's so hard to get game birds to train with and so i you know without my homing pigeons i don't know that i could i could develop a puppy in in the modern world that i live in now what what um we could go way down on the topic of just the the pigeons and birds itself but if somebody wanted to find out how to raise their own pigeons there, what would be a good resource for them? Um, well, I learned from my grandfather and he, but he's not around anymore, so he can't help you. Um, I, I don't, I don't honestly know, but I'm certain that the internet Google knows all, yeah. you know, I mean, right. uh, Foy's pigeon supply has a lot of stuff, um, that, you know, for pigeon supplies, I, I imagine they probably have some books on, on raising pigeons. I mean, they're, they're like rats. You almost can't kill them. Uh, uh, and if you just learn a little bit about how to home them, um, they're, they're fairly simple to, to keep. There are a few places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts. Walton's is that place. They have everything, and I mean everything, for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have experts on staff to help you learn how to use those products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meatgistics podcast, live stream, and chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasonings, and so much more. Walton's products ship the same day you order. They have over 5,000 items in stock, from grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, and anything else you can imagine. Order the same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game processing industry, Walton's. They have everything but the meat. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. Well, right now, so you live in Utah. What part of Utah do you live in? I'm in northern Utah. I'm just outside of Ogden. Okay. So is your weather probably pretty good for training right now? Is this a, is, would you say spring and early summer is kind of a prime dog training season for you? 
Yeah. Yeah. We, so we run trials this time of year and I, and I run in Nastra and, um, the trials are happening right now and we're having trials like every other week right now. So it's really hard to keep on top of the, the training new dogs. And, um, you know, I've got a young dog that's coming up and then I've got, uh, some younger dogs or excuse me, some older dogs. Let me start over with that one. I've got a dog pacing. So let me let him outside because he's going to, the beauty of this show is that every, most everybody can relate to your dogs needing. Mine is running around with three other dogs at the moment outside of our uh, podcast uh, <laughs> conference room here that we're recording in. So they, right. she's, I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> I'm <laughs> hoping enough. that she's not in any kind of trouble. But anyway, keep going. Anyway, so um, this is a good time of year to train. I start training right when, when well, I mean, we even train a little bit during hunting season if we're having some some problems. Uh, you know, George, in your last um, uh, podcast, he, he talked a little bit about, um, you know, identifying uh, what the dog's doing and stuff. And, and I, I like to think of it as critical analysis. I'm always picking apart what my dog's strengths and weaknesses are and being very honest about who my dog is. Um, and throughout hunting season, and I might even take a few notes so that I don't forget because I'm kind of a forgetful person. And then in the springtime, I try to correct all those things. And that usually starts as soon as snow is off the ground. These days, we don't seem to have winter in Utah anymore. So that starts in February. Um, I train through May or so on pen raised birds and stuff. I, I, I don't mess with the wild birds in the spring. I let them do their thing. Um, and then I'll start to pick it up about mid August and I'll start to, to run on, um, some pen raised birds and, and even a few wild grouse and things and getting dogs in shape for hunting season. So I, I do take a couple months off to try to fish a little bit and write books. One, well, yeah, and we're going to get to that too. One, sure. one pretty common question I get asked uh, over and over is when do you introduce a dog to birds? And obviously you've got pigeons, but you didn't mm -hmm. mention wild birds as well. What's your rule of thumb? So I get a, dog, a puppy home and um, get him settled in the house. And as soon as they're up and feeling, looking like they feel pretty comfortable here, we're going to go outside and I'm going to pull a pigeon out of the pigeon coop and I'm just going to show the bird a pigeon and I'm going to let him smell it and mouth it. And I might even play tug with the tail a little bit or a wing a little bit. And then I'm going to toss it up in the air and let it fly away. And if he looks like he enjoys that, and then I'm going to keep going at it and let, let some more birds fly. And I go through a process of just tossing birds for him until he's super excited about watching birds fly. And um, that's how I start. So I start right away. There's not an age is what you're saying. There's not, not at a, all. A, a I mean, I want the dog number. to grow up with birds. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I'm not, I don't know. I, I, I don't think there's a list of markers and age points where you can, you know, do those types of things. Now, when I actually go put a bird in the field for a dog, that, that's a little bit different. Um, so if, if that's what you're talking about, bird introduction. Sure. Yeah, no, um, I that, think that's, this keep going on that's that. That's a little bit, that's a little bit different. So I'm going to wait until I start to see probably some point out of the dog. Um, but realize what I'm using those toss birds for and stuff is at some point I want to introduce that pup to the gun so that I can take him on tag along hunts with me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, 
I don't have time during hunting season to walk off with a puppy by himself and just let birds fly. I don't really want to do that. I, got, I like running with my older dogs quite a little bit, and I like to be able to pull the trigger without making a gun-shy dog. So right. I like to introduce that, that dog to the gun whenever I can, and and I do. I go through a long process, and we could talk about that for days. I go through a whole bunch of little steps to make sure um, that I don't have a gun-shy dog. Well, that's um, yeah, that's that is its own episode. But if you could sum exactly. if you could sum yeah. that up, um, sure. Is it possible to do that? Can you so sum up your it, process well, and when you would start? Feel comfortable with the dog being sure. okay with it? Sure. Evaluate your puppy first. You know pretty quick what kind of puppy you got. Um, do you have a puppy that noises bother or do you got a puppy that ignores noises altogether or do you have a puppy somewhere in the middle? Um, the more that puppy's bothered by noises, the more steps I take to really be cautious. And I just go slow. I do it in the house, you know, I mean, around the house, you can sit around and clap your hands and, you know, don't pay no attention to it. And the puppy doesn't care. And, you know, I mean, all kinds of things like that, just to desensitize them to that shock. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the pro trainers, they, they, they do some different things, but, but I go through the same steps the pro trainers do later where, you know, I get the dog chasing a pigeon. I might not, you know, if it doesn't point it, it doesn't matter. I might put a pigeon in a launcher and the dog's chasing a pigeon and have someone shoot a blank gun off in distance. I'm going to go through that step too. Mm-hmm. I just do a lot of steps with, with, um, percussion noises in the house. I like the puppy. If I got a puppy that's very, uh, uh, He's an active eater. He goes right to his food and eats right away. I might have my wife stand in the other room and clap and watch him while he eats, see if he's, uh, you know, disturbed by that. Or, you know, I used a cap gun in the past, but I don't really think there's a difference between clapping and and a cap gun. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's people that tell me that's that's useless and there's no need to do that. But I don't know. It's my way. I'm going to do it. It works for me. So what's useless, the clapping or a, a cap gun? Um, they, they say that you don't need to do that. You know, the food thing in the house oh, or whatever, you know, yeah. I mean, but, but it's, I, I, I think the more you do, the better you are. So I like to take those baby steps. And as I'm watching that dog, my wife's clapping. If that dog's paying attention to her, I'm going to have her tone it down or even stop if the dog's concerned. I mean, you know, what's your puppy's reaction to the, to the disturbance? Uh, most, most puppies that I've had will just keep eating. Um, eventually you move it closer over a course of a few days. And once that, once you can clap above the dog while he's eating or whatever, then I might take him outside and, and clap outside and see if he, you know, if he's it, it, again, evaluating the puppy, I take it slower with some than others. Uh, I might start throwing birds and clapping a little bit or something, you know, if the bird dog's really into it, but eventually you go in the field and you can, put birds in launchers because I do a lot of bird tossing, uh, especially the last few dogs. Um, I just get them chasing the bird. I mean, when you throw a bird down in front of them and it flaps and starts to fly and they're chasing it, they're thinking about that. Just have somebody fire a 209 cap gun or or a blank gun or something in the background, move it closer. I mean, you, you know, if you've got a problem right away. Yeah. Um, and, and by the, if you've gone through these steps and you've paid attention to the puppy, by the time you get there, you, you know who you're dealing with. Not to keep going down this, but if you sure. have a dog or maybe you've seen it or maybe you haven't, but if you have a dog that's gun shy, can you ever actually break them of that? I think you can. I haven't ever had a problem. I haven't ever created a problem. I think gun shyness is, is noise sensitivity 
is a trait that some dogs have, I think. But gun shyness is a man-made problem. So if we don't ever create the problem, we don't ever have to fix it. However, I believe that you could desensitize a dog to that sound after he's become disturbed. It would just take a heck of a lot of work, just like a lot of things. You know, if you let your pointing dog run for three years and chase and catch, you know, pen raise pheasants at the club, and then you decide you want to pointing dog to hunt wild birds with, it's going to be pretty tough, right? Um, same thing with gun shyness. If you don't create the problem, you won't have a problem. I think we is there jets flying over? There there is. I live by the Air Force that's Base. What I that's what I thought. Both making motions like I think there's an airplane <laughs> flying over. As soon as I heard two in a row, I was like, Oh, that's a formation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So anyway, that's the sound of freedom you hear. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you you mentioned, you know, uh pen raised birds versus wild birds. Um I think yes, sir. there's um, you know, you also talked about the trials and I'm interested in trials because I know some people that run dogs in trials, they don't hunt that dog. Some people hunt and do trials. Um, some people just hunt. Uh, what's your take on, you know, that you've done a lot of trialing, uh, having a dog that does both. So the kind of trials that I do are, are Nastra trials. Um, and the dog doesn't have to be broke to a wing shot and fall. Like they would have to be in like American field or AKC or something like that. Uh, the dog just has to be broke to flush. Um, so for that reason, a uh, wild bird dog does, I think does pretty well in this. Well, they do pretty well in, in Nastra. Um, if you were trying to keep a dog broke, so I don't know too many guys, there are some, but I don't know too many guys that can hunt a, a dog that's broke to wing shot and fall, expect that same dog to retrieve and then keep him broke through a hunting season and into trial, this is pretty tough. So, that, you know, I think that would be a little bit harder, um, especially if he was your, like your only hunting dog. But for Nastra, I think it works really well. And uh, I think those wild bird, th- the things that the dogs learn on wild birds translate. The one thing that you have to, you have to take them a little bit further in training because your dog has got to be able to stand there while a a wild quail stands up and runs in front of them or walks in front of them. If your dog's going to break point when that bird stands up and starts walking, you're going to have some problems in Nastra. Were you intimidated the first time you signed up? I hear of a lot of people that are intimidated. I don't know that I was intimidated so much as I was trying to figure out if I wanted to play the game. And I had a young dog named Tick and, and I went out to a trial and I, you know, I signed up and I did, I did my research and I'm not the kind of guy who's just going to show up and try to figure it out on the fly. I, I read the rule book, you know, I mean, I, I, I did some, some, I talked to some people. Uh, there's a lady up in uh, Moscow who is a Nastra person and she was nice enough to talk me through some things. So I had a pretty good idea of what I was dealing with. Um, at least I thought, <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you about my first runs. I wasn't really intimidated. In fact, I was feeling pretty good about it. I, I drew, so the way Nastra works is they draw, there's 32 dogs in a trial. There can't be any more. And there has to be at least 24 dogs for it to be a three dog trial or excuse me, a three point trial, which is like a full trial. Right. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, so, uh, there was 32 dogs in this trial and, and then they take and, and they, um, they draw, 
out of a hat or installed in my computer now, I guess. Uh, let's just start over there. I kind of fumbled over myself there, Brandon. Um, so the way an astro trials work is uh, you have 32 dogs in a trial. You can have uh, as few as 24 to have a full trial. And I'll talk to you about what a full trial means in a minute. Um, but uh, they, they draw for braces. So it's two dogs and two handlers in each brace. And there's, so there'll be 16 braces. And there's like in between braces, you sit in a blind and you're hidden from the field while they go and they set five pen raise quail out there, right? Usually it's quail. It can be done on chunkers, and occasionally it is. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's bob white quail. Well, I drew in my very first brace, I drew a, a dog named Boomer. Now, Boomer's a Weimaraner. Now, I admit to having, back in my younger days, before I, I grew older and wiser, having some breed bias. And I thought, hmm, a Weimaraner. I was licking my chops, I'm not going to lie. I thought, <laughs> my buddy Ted, <laughs> we're going to blow this Weimaraner off the uh, L. That was, we let go of the dogs and ticked took off a, on a gear that I'd never seen him use before. And he went clear out of the end of the field and that Weimaraner stuck a bird there and stuck a bird over there. And I mean, this Weimaraner just cleaned the field with us. And I walked out of the field going, well, <laughs> I guess Weimaraners aren't so bad after all. <laughs> anyway, but it, it, it took a while. It turns out that that particular Weimaraner is the only Weimaraner, um, at least I think it's the only Weimaraner to this date that has championed in Nastra. It's certainly the only Weimaraner out here that has. Um, great dog. I learned to know that dog really well. And he's owned by uh, uh, a man, Matt Blockovich. Great dog, great guy. Anyway, um, but I learned, I, I, the thing that I didn't like about it at first was I was treating it like hunting. And you got to realize that it's not hunting. Nastra is a dog game. It's a game you play with your dog. And you're trying to score and you got to learn how to score. And so once I took it as a game and I started taking it more, I, I was a soccer coach for about 20 years and I started taking it more like it was more like soccer. So I started thinking about how to score. What did I leave out on the field? What do I need to train my dog to do to, to improve his score? And um, anyway, once I started thinking like that, we improved a little bit and it, it took, it took a year uh, we ran and try every trial we could for a year and we didn't place and it was a little bit discouraging. Um, but then he, he got a third place placement, like the very last trial of, I think it was the second year we trialed. And so it had been, you know, I was starting to wonder, does this dog even have it, you know, for the, for the whole trial thing. Anyway, uh, we qualified for the regional that year, um, and the regional, and here goes, here goes the sound of freedom again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll work through it. <laughs> okay. And, uh, uh, the, the regional elimination trial is sort of the pinnacle of the Nastra trial season, right? Yep. Um, and I'll talk to you more about that later, but anyway, um, so we went and ran on the regional and didn't do anything. So the next year, um, the very first trial, uh, tick goes out and wins. You're struggling a little bit now, feeling it? Well, a little bit. I yeah. was just more like, like at this point, I was just more in awe. I was like, holy cow, he, he's starting to get it. 
and then we just went on this crazy run and won a whole bunch of trials and, and um, the next regional he ended up winning. Besides a bird dog, a shotgun, and a good pair of boots, the Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I talk about the Onyx Hunt app every week. That's simply because I use it on every hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. Onyx app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state-owned land, federal lands, and walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has useful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the north woods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal forest habitat. If you're planning to hunt in North Dakota, then there's also a very important layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx Maps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage from the palm of your hand onyx maps always help you know where you stand nutrisource pet foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most it's called kombucha nutrisource kombucha inspired of course by kombucha is a savory meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kombucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional, healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Do you think, Brett, that it was you working with him or that dog just maturing to the point of understanding his role? Well, I think it's all inclusive. I mean, uh, you know, you, as a, as a handler trainer, um, you know, you try to set your dog up for success. Um, but you also sometimes have to set him up to fail in order to gain the success. If that makes sense. Uh, I, I'm around a lot of guys that are trying to train for trials and, uh, in training, they never let the dog fail. They set him up to succeed every time. And so when the, when the, the adversity happens in a trial, the dog fails because he's never seen it before. So I think, I think that was the big transition is I started setting him up to fail in practice. And then by, by doing that and, and correcting him, holding him accountable, he learned you know, how to succeed. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I think that speaks to wild bird hunting and the importance of taking a dog to a place that they have a lot of contacts with wild birds because they need to work through it. And yeah. it takes time to get to that point. And I think it's, it's all part of the, the hunting journey. Um, for, in, in, in your trialing, what, is there a breed that consistently wins? Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I've seen, you know, I guess it's probably the big four, um, that, that win consistently in Astro pointers, setters, 
English setters, um, Brittany's and German short-haired pointers. And recently out here, um, the draughts have become quite a force. Um, they didn't they didn't let them in for a little while because they didn't uh, Nastra didn't accept the German registry as as you know uh, a master an acknowledged pointing breed by Nastra or whatever. So they couldn't run. And uh, but now that they're they've been allowed to run, they're actually doing um, quite well in it. Especially you know certain trials, they seem to have a knack for certain terrains that the other dogs. Um, you know, they seem to, to do better at than the other dogs. I'm sorry. So, well, I, I thought we would be talking a lot more about your book by now. And I'm not sure how far into this conversation we are, but I think let's take time now to, uh, transition over. So, um, you recently wrote a book called, and here comes freedom again. That's not the yep. title. Of, that's not the title of the book. We'll let it pass. No, it's not. Yeah. The title of your book is a millionaire's dream. Why, yeah. why did you na- name it that, and uh, what is your book about? Well, I think I think if you read the book, you know exactly why it's titled that. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's a book about an impoverished um, young man in 1950s Idaho, rural Idaho, and um, he loses about everything he's got. He's a he's a you know. Let's start over with this. I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, I wonder if I can get in a, in a room where the airplanes are less severe. Maybe if I go more towards the center of the house, I would have less trouble. Um, maybe it's better in here. We'll try it from here. Okay. So, well, it's about a an impoverished teen in 1950s rural southeast Idaho. And he lives on a farm. Uh, with his mother and his mother passes away at the beginning of the book. And he really has to learn how to, to make it on his own. And he, he's, he's social, he's socially awkward and, and sort of set back in life because his mother's been fighting this disease for a long time. And so as much of his life has been surviving and just helping her fight this disease. And all of a sudden she's gone and he's got to make something of a life for himself. He doesn't really have any friends. He's got, sort of some family, but, you know, and he's got the townspeople, but, you know, anyway, so he, he's really struggles and eventually he meets, uh, he meets up with an English setter puppy. That's, uh, uh, kind of a special dog. And, and through this setter puppy, he meets a very wealthy man from the city who is into dog trialing and they sort of become, uh, like a mentor mentee relationship. And, and this man gives him a way to make a living. I wouldn't say he gives him a way to make a living. He offers him a way to earn a living. How's that? And, uh, they, uh, go on this journey to try to win this, this, this big field trial. And on the way, uh, the main character, James Crockett, he, he learns a lot about, uh, love and, and, and girls and, you know, makes a lot of mistakes along the way. And, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's a story a lot of people relate to. So, and I hope I wrote it in such a way that, that people do enjoy it. Now, do you know this character? No, this is all fictitious. So, um, the, the character James Crockett came out of a, uh, out of, out of my mind. Uh, I was, I was hunting in Southeast 
Idaho, where I spend a lot of time. And I, I, my stepdad grew up in southeast Idaho, so I'm, I'm really familiar with his hometown and several other little towns in that area. And I was just up there hunting one day, and I came across this old homestead uh, while I was hunting pheasants. And I walked into into the homestead, and and because the door was open, and I looked around, and you know it was broken down and dilapidated, and and there wasn't a lot to do. But my mind started working, and I thought. I wonder who the last person to live here was. And I, I wondered if, if he looked out on these fields the same way I did, or if he saw them different. And I thought, what if he was a bird dog guy? And so I, I just, it all just came that day hunting. I, the beginning of that story happened. And then I went on a, a long research journey to search, you know, what that play, that area would have looked like in the fifties. And, uh, I gathered information from several towns and sort of made my own fictitious town that would have been in that area somewhere and went on from there. When did you decide to write a book about it? Um, I had already been considering writing a book. So I think it was probably that day it was the day I decided to write a book. I, I had gotten into writing as an older person. I wasn't, I wasn't into English and, or even school when I was young, I was um, kind of the opposite of that. But as I got older, early forms of social media and stuff, I learned that I could write stories a little bit and, and people like to read my hunting stories and I get a lot of comments and you should write a book. And I think, you know, I think they meant you should write a book about hunting stories <laughs> and, and maybe I should have, but I didn't really want to write a book just about my adventures in the hills uh, maybe I will someday, but right now I don't, I don't, truthfully, I don't find it that interesting. It's what I do every day, you know, all the time. But, um, so I, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I could write fiction that's about people like us who like to do the things that we like to do and live the lifestyle that we live. And maybe it came out of a different time. And that's sort of what I figured out. Well, how long did it take for you, you know, I, I have to imagine you had to research, you know, how do you publish a book and, and figure oh. everything out? Like from start to finish, did you know how long it took to get your book from your first words on paper to published? I had no idea how long it would take. Um, you know, I, I'm limited in time. Also, I have many things going on. So I get, you know, parts of days and every now and then a full day to write here and there. It took three years to write the book. Um, when I put the final period on, it was almost three years to the day. Uh, once that was done, I figured it was, you know, it was over, <laughs> but it wasn't. That's when the journey really began. So then I, I learned that it's a good idea to have some people read your work. Thought. So, <laughs> That's so I never said fun, it. by the way, when somebody <laughs> reads your work and then they give you the opinion, you say, never mind, I'm, I'll just take it back. Forget you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so I sent it out to people from the, that I trusted, friends, you know, um, from different parts of the country. Um, my favorite person I sent one to is, is in inner city LA. I mean, she's from pretty rough LA because I wanted to send it, I wanted to send it to someone who wasn't in my world, uh, to see if they could enjoy it. And, uh, anyway, the feedback came back and I made some adjustments to the, to the manuscript and, and edit it, you know, another time or two. And then I put it up and I was really, I was trying to figure out how to, how to get a publisher to, to get on board. And I, I started reading about publishing and that took some time and I kind of just gave up and, 
And my wife kept pushing it. You need to have it published. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe I'll just set it aside and write another book and worry about it later because I didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> and uh, she said uh, she kept at me. And finally, we, we kind of attacked it as a team and we found all these different publishers and we sent out query letters to all these publishers. And um, we did get a couple of bites about it was kind of frustrating because it took about three months. And uh, then I got, you know, of course, I got some uh, some of the predatory offers that they wanted to publish my book with my money. And, uh, you know, they were going to charge me a bunch to do it. Um, but I finally got a, an offer from Touchpoint Press down in Arkansas. And uh, it was a good offer. I accepted it. And uh, then you think it's over and it's still not over. So then you have to go through the editing process. And it took another month before the book was um, went into editing, before it came up in the queue and the editor's thing. Gotcha. And she sends me, so you wait a month for, for them to send this to you. And she sends me the manuscript back all marked up. And she says, make these edits. You've got like, you know, three days to do it in or something. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I work for a living, man. <laughs> you know, so, and this, this went back and forth, but you stay up nights and you get it done. And uh, anyway, this went back and forth. I think we did four or five times and we butted heads a little bit and other, you know, we made each other laugh and it was fun working with her. And it was all great. Nice. And then you're done editing and you're done, but you're not. So then you wait. And I didn't hear another thing. I realized that I signed the contract in 2020 and you know what we were going through in 2020. Let's not yeah. talk about it. We all know what we we're going through. Yep. And so it was in July of 2020 in October, I was done editing. And then I heard nothing forever. And of course people are, when's your book going to be out? You know, when's your book going to be? And I don't know. I don't even know what to tell them. And a year later, <laughs> I finally got, uh, you know, I finally got a request for, for, or not a request, but um, uh, a query about cover art. What did I want on the cover? And that was the next thing I heard. So it took them a year to get from just from that editing process to where they were working on a cover. And of course, the cover art, the, the press that published me, they are not in the bird dog world at all. They, are, they publish all kinds of books, but I don't know that they publish. This is probably the first book about dogs and hunting and trials that they've ever seen. And so they were sending me, you know, images. Of course, I'm a first time author, so they're trying to save a little bit of money too. And they're sending me images of uh, bench setters on point and <laughs> all these things. And, and I'm like, man, <laughs> I don't know if that's right. And so finally I just went out and stood uh, my young dog on the, on the hill at sunrise and took a picture of him <laughs> and kind of, uh, shadowed the image and did some filters to it and sent it in. And I said, just use this. And so uh, the dog on the picture is one of our dogs. That's very cool. Um, if somebody reads the book, what do you hope they take away from it? Well, I hope they, first of all, I hope they, um, I might have a dog problem here. I just heard a growl. That's really unusual at my house. Um, okay. Everything good there? Yeah, we have a, a little food issue. Okay. My oldest dog, Tick, thinks that, that one of the younger dogs' food belongs to him, and the younger dog is protesting. Oh, sure. 
This is an on-air seminar (laughs) starting right now. (laughs) What are you going to do, Brett? How are you going to handle this? Because I'm distracted. I just picked up the food. But (laughs) (laughs) Nobody gets any food. There, take that. That's what I do with my kids, too. Same thing. We'll we'll (laughs) take care of this later. (laughs) Anyway, so um, I don't remember where we were. Oh, that's okay. I, I asked what um what you hope somebody would take away from this book if they have the opportunity to read it yeah so well i mean i hope that i hope people like you and i just enjoy it i hope it's entertaining i hope i hope it's fun uh and if they're if they're not into trials i hope they go to a trial and watch a trial whether it's uh whether it's master american field or akc or any of the other uh trial associations that are around because if nothing else, it's a great place to, to see some wonderful dogs and talk to some people who are really passionate about the bird dog side of bird hunting. And there's a lot to bird hunting, a lot more than just dogs. But the bird dog side of it, um, there are a lot of people out there who are super passionate. You can see a bunch of different breeds run at some of these trials. And um, I mean, some of my best friends have, have come from, from dog trialing. And... Um, Anyway, I hope that, that people will be a little bit more um, interested in the trialing side of it. Uh, there is, you know, I think you, you, you mentioned it earlier. I think there's a perception that a wild bird dog can't be a trial dog. It's either a hunting dog or a trial dog. And, and maybe that is true in some uh, aspects, but it's, it's all beautiful. Uh, watching a dog run full speed for an hour in an American field trial is pretty amazing and then spin and stick birds and you know it's it's pretty amazing and then you go out to a an astra trial and and watch two dogs run against each other for a half hour and and put birds on the card and uh, you know pressure each other and you know it it, they're competitive and it 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 brings out a different gear in them well and and you'll you'll never see that's okay you'll never see that gear hunting yeah um we started this conversation out by you explaining how you uh, introduce kids to dogs and birds and hunting in the world of conservation. And I, I'm wondering as I'm listening to the story, so I have three, uh, four kids, but three of them that are fascinated with reading and we read every night and I've got several hunting books that they've been given for Christmas. Um, you know, they're, they're stories. Mm-hmm. They're, just like a story that you've written, it sounds like. And I'm wondering, is this this book, would it interest um, young kids as well? Because I've, I've been interested in the stories that I've been reading, these novels that I've been reading to my boys and, and my girl. Um, but we're done with those now, and I, I don't feel like there's a lot out there in this, you know, the wildlife um, novel book for us to choose from. Would this well, be a good one for kids? And that's part of my motivation. And it is written family friendly. Um, it's pretty tame. I mean, there's there's a heated scene in a girl with a, you know, in a girl with a girl in a car. Um, but it's a steamy windows and things, but it's not, <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> but there's not uh, anything, anything real bad in this book. I hope it's entertaining for kids. I have some of my friends, their kids have read it and the kids liked it. You know, the, the early parts of it are a little bit dark, um, maybe to, to get into for the kids, but kids that like reading, I think will, will like it. I hope. 
Excellent. What's coming up next? I know you've got more in the works. Yeah, I'm writing another one. Um, the next one's a little bit more, uh, a little bit different. I'm, I'm kind of taking on something that's, that's a little bit passionate to me in my life. I've watched uh, my world disappear um, to what I call the cancer of the American West. And I don't know what it's like where you live, but here um, the expanding urban, expanding urbanization has really just taken all the farms and um, it's, you know, uh, there's just not much left. And so I figured I'd write a book about how, uh, you know, it, it's, there's some characters that are going to live out some acts and, and, um, you know, as we're developing all this land, there's just things we're de- that we're destroying that are also valuable. And in this book, there's something that's destroyed that we only find out it existed at the end after it's too late. And that's the basics of it. Okay. Got a title for that one yet? No. I'm only a little ways in. Unfortunately, I don't have very much time to write right now. I got so much going on. Well, that's a good Uh, thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. I appreciate you taking some of your time today to join us. Last question for you. It's training season. You've trained a lot of dogs. You've learned the hard way. What's one piece of advice you could give somebody that wants to train their own dog that you've learned along the way that could make a big difference for them? One piece of advice. Well, that's hard. But I guess the, the biggest thing is lay off the e-collar. Maybe, you know, let get the dog his head a little bit. Uh, let him show you some things. But that, that's one thing is I would not shock the dog so dang much, but I got I to gotta get something better than that. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's okay. We're going to leave it at that, Brett. I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time today. I I really value all the um, effort that you've put into teaching other kids and, and just putting yourself out there into places that a lot of people aren't doing. And I guarantee you're making a difference and I commend you for doing that. Thanks, Brett. Uh, we, uh, if, if somebody wanted to find your book, where can they find it? Yeah, it's on Amazon and it's also on brettwanacott.com. Okay. And it's titled A Millionaire's Dream. There it is I, again. Wait, I got to ramp up to it. We're learning on air. We're, we're learning. This is an yeah, on-air yeah. production meeting. This is how we're doing it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Look at how I just kind of like segue picking, into it. I'm picking right it. Okay, here we it, go. Yeah. We appreciate you taking the time to join us this week. And next week, I'm not exactly sure what the topic is going to be yet. I've got a lot of great ideas and a lot of great guests lined up. But if you have a guest or a topic that you want us to cover, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, please reach out to us. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, but more importantly, you can find The Flush at theflush.tv or on Instagram or Facebook. Um, Send us a message. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you like and what you want to hear more about. And we will break it down. And Brandon, you <laughs> ran out of music. Just like softly play it again. We'll also work on the timing for yes. next episode we're, as well. <laughs> we are like our dogs. We're always learning. And we're always trying to figure out <laughs> what in the world we're doing. But we appreciate you taking the time to join us. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Rank reminding you to introduce someone new to the great outdoors. <laughs> Uh, we'll just we'll just let it roll all the way out.
We did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> we made it. <laughs>